0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm excited to continue on uh, our Jesus story uh, series that we started. Um, One of the things that I want to do is I think sometimes whenever we preach a sermon, um, it's like, oh, my goodness, here's all the stuff somebody uh, has come up with. I actually just want to start by telling you guys that a lot of the stuff that I'm going to share with you guys today um, came from a number of different books that I really love. So the first one is Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by a guy named Kenneth Bailey. Uh, The second one is True to Our Native Land. It's an African-American commentary. Uh, And the last one is The Gospel of Luke, and it's a commentary uh, out of the New International uh, Commentary Series, and it is incredibly helpful. And then N.T. Wright has these little books called For Everyone. Uh, They're little like devotional commentary series. Uh, And so I am definitely don't want you guys to be up here and think like, oh my gosh, uh, I can't find these things. Um, I like to read and I love reading. It is like an obsession of mine. I, uh, My wife will come to me and she will be like, one less book, please. Um, And I used to direct a bookstore, which means that me and the publishers were real tight. And that meant I got free books. Yeah. So that meant that we had to move from like one bookcase to two bookcases to now, like, it probably would be wise for me to build out my wall in our office in order for us to fit some. That is still a negotiation. Uh, I'm still waiting for her to agree with me. Uh, But I think it's fitting because I love books. But also, there are a number of other things that I love. Like, I don't know if you, if you guys can think of something that you're just like uh, in love with, crazy obsessed with, like your life kind of revolves around some of these things. I remember when I was really young, probably about six or seven years old, my dad uh, went into uh, the closet in his room and he pulled down this white shoebox with a purple top and he took off the lid and he pulled out some of these cards and he started showing them to me and it was all baseball cards, like so many baseball cards. And it started for me in that moment, this lifelong obsession with baseball cards. I was going to collect so many cards. Watch me. All right. But here's the thing. You got to afford those things. And so my dad, one of the best memories I have with my dad when I was younger is we would go to the store and there was always be this like little pocket aisle at Target. And we would walk into that little aisle and there would just be like, As a kid, you know, you think it's the biggest aisle in the store because it's everything you ever want. But really, it was just like right before the checkout was this little turn. And right there was just a whole wall of baseball cards. And my dad would say, let's pick out a couple packs and I'd get to take those, and then I'd, I'd take them, and I'd open them, and I'd get home, and I'd go through them. And soon enough, my brothers became old enough that they started loving baseball cards. And then I found out that not only can you collect them because they're awesome to collect, but you can trade them. So then I started ordering this magazine called Beckett Baseball Card Monthly. And it was before the internet, and, and what Beckett Baseball Card Monthly did was it told you the price of every card that you would pull. I could look up what the baseball player's name was, who uh, the author of that baseball card was, what company produced the card, and I could find out, was it a dollar? Was it $5? Was it a $100? And I could use that, that knowledge that I had, to beat my brothers in trading baseball cards. And then my neighbors got real into it. So then my dad became the commissioner. And I made it my goal to know every possible thing about baseball cards that I could. Like, Tops, Bowman, you name it. Like, I could say, that card in this place, if I turn my Beckett to this position, will tell me that this card is worth approximately 13 cents and mine is worth 100, so you need to give me 400 Manny Ramirez's for that card, right? And that wasn't at all a fair trade. But I did make it my goal at one point because I loved formerly the Indians, now the Guardians. Uh, It was about 1996, 1997, some big years up here, right? And I thought it was cool because my uncle used to help work security. And so uh, I thought the Indians were like the greatest thing ever. And so I was obsessed with Manny Ramirez. It was my goal in life to make sure that my friend who liked the Phillies, Got as many Lenny Dykstra cards, who was some rando center fielder. He wasn't bad. But he could have all my Lenny Dykstra's if he gave me all his Manny Ramirez's. Because Manny Ramirez, one of the greatest RBI hitters of all time, and a PED user, but we'll look on from that. Um, I just had to have more of his cards. And I was obsessed with it. I wanted to learn all about baseball cards. I wanted to get as many Manny Ramirez's as possible. I was going to collect more than anybody else, and if you go and look up in my closet now, my parents had to drive up to Cleveland one year because they wanted to give me all the stuff that they had at my at my at my childhood home. So there is a massive box of about ten thousand baseball cards sitting in my uh, house uh, in the closet. Some of them are cherished because I was given them a Brooks Robinson rookie card. But I still, to this, day, just, to this day, just get so excited about baseball cards. And I'm sure that all of us have something that we can think about, whether it's, you know, sports, uh, maybe statistics, uh, maybe it's anime, maybe it's shoes. Like, I have people who will talk to me about shoes until they are blue in the face. And I'm like, I wear Nike. I wear All birds, because they're a little bit more comfortable. I own a lot of shoes. I don't care what their name is or what their brand is. I care that my feet aren't being gripped to death in the shoes that I'm wearing. But some people will sacrifice fashion for the grip of death in their shoe. I don't understand it, but I had a guy one time who was like, I went to this store and there was Nike fuel something version three. And I'm like, like Nike, that's a good shoe. I think, you know, but some people like, for some people it's shoes. For some people it might be dance. For some people it might be fashion. For some people it might be music. For some people it might be concerts. I don't understand concerts. Sometimes I like music, but piling in on top of people while people yell, I'm just like, I'm going to go crawl over here and just spend some time in solitude. So if you are a concert person, awesome. More power to you. I might not come along, but I love you. Um, I'll give you a baseball card in exchange, okay? But I can imagine we can all recall something that we are just absolutely engaged with learning and understanding as much as we possibly can about those things. And here's the thing. This sermon is not going to be, well, those things are all bad and idols. Because I think we've heard that too many times. These things are actually not bad things. They're signs that God has wired us for longing and connection and to find meaning. I loved that I was the kid with 300 Manny Ramirez cards, right? I think it's awesome that I have 10,000 baseball cards, now that doesn't mean that, like, oh my gosh, I go home and pray to Ken Griffey Jr. No, like that's wild and crazy. Don't do that. Ken Griffey Jr. can't do that, even though he's got a cool batting stance, guys. But, but I think sometimes when we think about these things, we ultimately kind of hide them. And I think sometimes it's just good to share because they offer us joy and excitement, and they fulfill something in us that just says, "I am excited." I am happy. This is something I love and care about. Sometimes I think those things can lead us to hopelessness when we put all our hope in collecting the most things or doing the most things. But I think oftentimes we center our lives around some of this stuff because we love it. Because something in us is, is set a fire, is set ablaze that says, I love it. Maybe it's even a job. Man, if your job is something that you're just like, I get up and I I am fueled by the work that I do. Wow, that's fantastic to center your life around something that helps people, that does good, is so honoring to God. And I think that it's done through a relationship with God, and we're going to talk about how that applies today. But in the gospel of Luke, where we're going to spend some of our time today, the gospel and its stories challenge our reality and the way that we order our lives. That Jesus is going to challenge those who are listening to order their life around new realities that he's put forward. He's not going to ask them to say, never do this again, but he's going to say, might the ways that we've been viewing things And the things that we're excited about, might there be something greater? Might it be like the song that we just sang? That all of these things are becoming new, that becoming different, and God is reshaping and reforming the reality and the pictures of reality and the hopes that we have for our current situation. You see, I think the big question that we're going to look at today is Jesus asking us all, Who or what are we a disciple of? Uh, John Mark Comer says that uh, in a world where we see radical individualism sweeping the globe, where everybody says, I don't care what anybody else does, I just do me, that it's actually a fallacy. Everyone is following something or someone. Everyone is ordering their life around some ideology one way or another. Believe it or not, people who say that or profess that are actually ordering their lives around radical individualism. And believe it or not, in the West, radical individualism is actually a pretty uh, discongruent thing with the with the culture in the New Testament. There wasn't radical individualism. There was who are we as a collective? Who are we as a people? What does it mean to be a Greek? What does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be living under the authority of the Roman Empire? All of us are a disciple of something. We are giving our lives and centering our lives around something that orders and gives value to the way we think about life. In Luke 5, Jesus is going to tell, we're going to hear the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. And his invitation is to order their lives around a new reality. And here's the thing, uh, many of you uh, have, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably sang a song about this passage. It's like, I will make you fishers of men. Like how many VBS songs can they make about being fishers of men? The answer is like infinite, (laughs) right? Like, it's like the primary thing. The thing that we're actually going to talk about a little bit is actually that is not the main point of this passage. Um, And for a long time, I worked for an organization that was truly passionate about evangelism and discipleship. And I would hear this verse all the time in the context of you just need to go share your faith. And I think they missed the point. I think I missed the point. And so I hope for you uh, this morning... Uh, because I can miss the point. We can all miss the point. And so I, this morning, am trying to structure the way that I think around this new way of thinking and this new reality that Jesus has invited me into. That it's not just doing, but that it's about being. That it's about what we actually love and what we care about and who God has laid on our hearts to care about. That it isn't just a passage that is talking about the effort that you give, but it's actually talking about the place you belong and the way that we care. So let's look at Luke 5, 1 through 11. Now, I, um, I geek out, like I said, about books. So there will be a point we're gonna talk about in a little bit where I go into some like teaching. Um, I promise I'm gonna try to keep it short. I also promise uh, that if you are like, this is boring me, like just tune me out for like three minutes and then we'll come back. And be like, okay, now Nate's back. Uh, but here's what it says. It says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, it's the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and he taught people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deeper water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon, also known as Peter, answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. (laughs) Easier said than done, right? Uh, From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, uh, when we look at this passage, there's a couple things I want to qualify this with. Jesus is teaching to a large Greco-Roman audience, uh, and particularly likely Jews living in a Greco-Roman world. Uh, in this world, the ideologies that were at play here was that matter, as in what you can see and touch, were bad, and spirit was good. Spirit was good. The other ideology that was pretty common was that the abstract was bad and the concrete was good. You wanted something firm, reliable, logical, We don't do abstract. There's nothing ethereal. There's nothing out there that I have to contemplate or think about, or I might not fully understand. We we needed something clear cut. And so often Jesus, as he's teaching, one of the things that you'll notice in his teaching, and even the way the Bible is set up, is that it is often communicating to this world in the New Testament, which is why Jesus goes back to the creation story quite a bit, because ultimately he says, actually, God created and he said it was good. So Jesus is addressing some of the the ideologies as he's preaching that maybe matter might be what we make of it. And the spiritual, there actually can be good and bad elements of spirituality. That things might not be as sure or as certain as you would like them to be. And maybe the world can be more abstract at times than it can be concrete. And sometimes the concrete nature that we long for is simply to give us something to cling on to, when in reality, Jesus's invitation is to cling on to something else, something better, even if it might not be as clear cut as what we hope. So that's the stage, the ideologies that Jesus is speaking to. But he also want to set the stage in that Jesus is teaching and he's teaching as a rabbi. Now, this was a common practice. I think a lot of people, when they hear about the calling of disciples, they think like, ooh, Jesus, this is new and revolutionary. He's calling all these people. It was common for a rabbi to start his ministry at around 30 years old and to gather a group of people who would become his disciples. It was very common practice, uh, a very common rabbinical practice in that day. So Jesus actually isn't doing anything that's like, whoa, this is outlandish. What is he thinking? Telling these people. Now, who he's talking to, you'll find out is, because none of these people have studied the Torah. None of these people know the Hebrew Bible. And uh, That would have been pretty typical for a rabbi to go after people who also were experts in the Hebrew Bible, but that is not what we see Jesus do. He asks these men to take up his yoke. And uh, a lot of the times we hear yoke sometimes in the Bible and we're like, what is that? Like, is that a thing that goes around a cow's neck? Like, are we plowing fields? Like what's going on? Yoke was simply a rabbi's teachings, That's what that means. So when you see the word in the scripture, like when Jesus invites people to take his yoke upon them, he's saying, here's my teachings. Here's what I care about. And we say, we'll follow Rabbi Jesus. Now, here's the thing that I think is really important is the way that this story is structured is something that is called chiastic structure. And really all that means is like, you know, in math, when you have like, which way the gator is pointing, like what number is being chomped. It's like greater than or less than, right? That's how I would have had to like draw the teeth in there. Uh, Think about chiastic structure as like a giant greater than symbol, okay? So there's like a piece of the story that's gonna start here and that's where it's gonna also end. There's like a chunk in the middle and then there's like the pinnacle moment in the story. And that in the scriptures is a structure that's often used so that we understand what's the main point, what's the most important part. This story is set up in chiastic structure, okay? If you want to look out, uh, look into it more, or talk about it more, we can geek out about this later because I think it's a cool thing, Uh, but I don't want to get lost in the weeds. And it's important to understand why the chiastic structure is important here because it actually tells us what's the most significant part of the story, all right? So, a quick recap. The first part of the story is that they go out on a boat. Jesus asks Simon Peter, "Will you take me out?" Now, I want want you to notice something. In this first part, Jesus says that there were or it said the story says that there were fishermen and two boats that had come and the fishermen were washing off their nets. All right? That doesn't mean that the fishermen were there for Jesus. Think about that. There's all these people gathering around and the people that Jesus asked to help him are not the people that's there for them, they're for him. That's wild to me. Like it would be like a random walking by a car dealership and just being like, can you take me out in the truck on just a little test drive? Just back it up so all these people can hear me. And you'd be like, uh, uh, I, I guess, I don't know. Like I think the fishermen, they probably weren't just like, Totally cool, man. Not a big deal. Why? Because fishermen, their primary uh, time to fish was at night. So these guys had just gotten back up to shore. They were washing their nets. They're like, how much should eye can I get before we go back on this lake? They weren't there to be like, I just cannot wait for this man to give an hour sermon. Right? No. They were actually cleaning up. They were ready to turn in. And Jesus is like, hold on, can you just push out there a little bit for me? Simon Peter says, yeah, sure. At least that's what the passage said. I'm sure he had a lot of words in his head. And so they push out. And Jesus and Peter then have this convo, right? Where he says, hey, master, what the heck are we doing? Like in in the passage, it sounds like way more toned down than what it actually is, that this conversation that Peter and Jesus have, uh, it's actually uh, Peter being a little sarcastic. When Jesus looks at him and says, hey, why don't you go a little bit deeper? Why don't you cast out your nets? Peter isn't like, oh master, yes we will. I think it's maybe a little more sarcastic because don't forget, Jesus is a carpenter. Like, he's not known as the savior of the universe, God in the flesh yet. So, if some random person came up to you while you were working your job that you have many years of experiences, in fact, it's the family business, so you've been doing this since you were a kid. You actually know how to steer a boat better than you know how to steer a car. Obviously, I don't have cars yet, but you get the drift. <laughs> That you would be pretty ticked if this guy comes on the boat and says, go out a little bit further into the deeper water. Let down your nets. It's cool. I'm a carpenter. No big deal. I know these things. You don't. Even though you're the pro. I would be pissed. We'd be having words. If we weren't having words here, we were having words here. Right? You know it. You can say it. It's okay. We all think it sometimes. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he lets down these nets. And these nets uh, would have been known as trammel nets. And I, I don't fish. I don't know. Uh, so I'm not going to pretend to be like, oh, as a fisherman. I know. No, this is what the scholars say. That these nets were called trammel nets. And they were specifically made for fishing at night. And if you fish with them during the day, they would be so obvious. It would be like the fish could see them and it would, they would avoid them. So Peter goes out, Jesus tells him, go out a little further in the deepest parts of the lake in the middle of the day, you know, when all the fish are hiding on the shore, cast your net that's super obvious into the deepest part of this water and watch what happens. (laughs) And all of a sudden, Simon eats his words and is like, oh crap. I wonder how that argument that was happening in his mind was going because all of a sudden, All of these fish start coming into the net and all of a sudden they have an abundance that he has to actually like signal to his buddies, like, bring out the other boat, you know? And if there's anything I know about fishing is like once that you hit like a spot, like fishermen have a spot. Oh no, microphone down. Fishermen have like a spot, right? And you don't tell anybody else about your spot. My brother one year for his uh, bachelor party decided that we were going to go deep sea fishing. I am terrified of the water. Sharks live in the water. Many animals who are larger than myself live in the water. I prefer to be the biggest guy in the room. Like, it's a little safer sometimes to feel that way. But when there's a possibility that I could, for fun, go out into the ocean and catch a Goliath grouper that could eat me alive, not my cup of tea. (laughs) Keep me on the solid ground. But everybody knows when you're out there, This guy's driving around in the middle of the ocean. You can't see any land. And he's like, this is a good spot. And I'm like, literally, you could have parked anywhere and said that. And I would have believed you because I have no idea where we are. Like, I'm a good, I'm good, like getting around town. I can give you directions. When we are in the ocean, I am lost. Like, I don't know where he is. Do you go by GPS coordinates? Like, how do you know the fish are here, man? Like, explain this to me. And sure enough, people start pulling up fish. And so in the same way, Peter, he's like, I've hit the jackpot. I've hit the jackpot, there's so much fish, my boat is sinking, come over here, but he can't be too loud because there are other fishermen around, so he's like, you know, trying to like pull the nets up, things are going poorly because everybody's sinking, these boats could hold about a ton, and Jesus and Peter were seemingly the only people in the boat, and James and John were in the other boat, so the amount of fish sank was sinking two boats, I mean, we are talking Holy cow, this miracle that is happening is, is the equivalent of the fisherman lottery. Like when they go and they catch the fish, it is the equivalent of saying, we have, we have caught so much fish that we will have provision for the absolute rest of our lives. This is the moment that we've all been fishing for. This is the reason we do what we do because of this kind of haul to find this spot. No one will think to fish here in the middle of the day. And they haul it all in. And as they're trying to get it back to, to shore, Jesus and Peter have another conversation where Peter is like, I maybe mixed some things up here, man. I'm kind of sorry. I maybe got it wrong. And he changes the way that he addresses Jesus. Jesus in the first conversation is no longer... Or Jesus in the first conversation was master. But Jesus in the conversation after was Lord. In a short time, there was this reorientation in the second conversation where Peter realizes... That he's not just in the presence of a good teacher. But that he's in the presence of someone that he says you are the one I will center my life around. For uh, Notice that he says I am sinful depart from me. Because he's acknowledging this man in front of me must be somebody of such holiness and such significance. That he's no longer worthy to just be called a teacher. He must be that of holy God. And then the boats returned to shore. And it says that Peter and James and John abandoned all that they had to follow Jesus. Now, in the Greek, this is important. This is an exaggerated ending. They did give up all they had. But for all of us out there who are worried, they likely did not just leave the fish in the boat to die okay? It wasn't like they won the lottery, and then they were like, cool, we caught all this fish. Now we're just going to leave them in the boat. It's cool. They did abandon all that they had, because here's the thing. What they were saying is, my life lived up to this point, has been totally gathered around my identity and belonging as a fisherman. I'm a part of this community of people who goes and fishes on the Sea of Galilee, and we have waited our whole lives for this haul the lottery. We are set For life. And yet, after the encounter with Jesus, here they are saying, this might not be the way I'm going anymore. Maybe I need to orient myself to a whole new reality. One that says that this man who I'm encountering might be more than just a good teacher, but he might be the one sent of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to make a few observations from the story that I think are some things that I want to take away. Things that I hope we can take away. Things that I'm learning and things that I hope we can learn together. And so I'm going to make an observation and then an application of that observation to our current day. The, The first thing that I want to observe is that Jesus does not shame skepticism or uncertainty. Just because... Peter takes him out in the boat. Jesus doesn't demand of him to call him by a proper title. Peter is skeptical of Jesus. Peter is saying, "Uh, yeah, sure. I'll go cast my net. I'll go out a little further. Fine. Give him the time of day. I'm already out here. Might as well get some work in. What does this guy know what he's doing? He's a carpenter. There's a natural skepticism. And I think I I don't blame Peter. I think in some ways he should have been skeptical. I don't think it was wrong for him to be skeptical. But in a world where we're constantly looking for concrete and certainty and absolutely have to know and have to be right, that we can take a page from Jesus and say, what if? Things and the way the world is are a little more abstract than we'd like to make them. And our concrete uh, desire is is simply to, to find ourselves in the right. That so often I have to find myself, I love being right. If you were at our small group on Tuesday in a good debate, I love being right. I like winning, it's concrete. You know, you're the best. But man, how many times do I need to repent because so oftentimes things that I have learned, things that I have taught, things that I have discipled others in the way of might not be as concrete as I confessed that they were. It was a way for me to provide certainty in myself. And I'm learning as I get older that there are some things that I'm invited to be uncomfortable enough with the uncertainty that it draws me to curiosity. Curiosity never leaves me wondering about Jesus, but the curiosity leaves me wondering about all the different ideologies and cultural ideologies that we might build these things around. You see, here's the application. Jesus can handle your doubts and uncertainties. Western Christian culture has thrived on certainty. It has made an industry of producing books upon books to try to tell you the 10 best ways to do this, that, and the other thing. But what if it's not that concrete? Because here's the thing. People are unique. We all have different loves. We all have different things we care about. If there was a formula, I'd love for it to work every time. But the times that I try these formulas, often they just leave me fleeting and longing for something that can give me more certainty. But what if certainty is not the point? What if the point is for me to take my uncertainty and my doubt and my skepticism to Jesus and say, I'm unsure, but God, I've seen you do something significant. And and might I get to see you do something significant in my life? that the uncertainty I bring to you is nothing that you haven't thought of, it's nothing that you can't handle, and it's nothing that you're shaming me for. God's not ashamed because you doubt. God's not ashamed because of your skepticism. God and, and Jesus is not ashamed. Or you should not live in shame because you have questions. It is a natural part of life. The abstract sometimes can create greater beauty than the concrete. Second thing, Jesus invites us to reorientation. He invites us to, oh my goodness, this thing is all over the map. He invites us to reorientation. Reorientation, uh, when you orient yourself around something, baseball cards, whatever, uh, you line, align your life to it. You make, your, uh, it, you make it a significant portion of your life, right? Uh, for my wife, she loves to thrift. Her Saturdays are often organized around the estate sale that she finds on Facebook, or the garage sale when the garage sale season starts, or the midwinter garage sale that she finds randomly and somehow attends in the 30-degree weather. Now, that's the thing, is Jesus invites us to not say, Megan, never go garage sailing again. Why are you at an estate sale? Do we need more candles? No. (laughs) Jesus is inviting us to reorient our lives and say, here's the way that you once viewed the world and the things that were important. Here is a new way of looking at things. You can name and know Jesus. And here's the thing, I think that can sound a little contradictory and I like it because it's a little abstract, is that we just said, uh, you know, Jesus can handle your doubt and uncertainties. And then we turn around and say, hey, the application is you can name and know Jesus. And I think that that is something that I am confident in, is that Jesus over and over gives space for you to understand who he is and what he's come to do. You can name him and know him. There is a way for you to have a relationship with God without all the concrete answers. You can name him and know him just as Peter reoriented to a new name for the person in front of him who just performed the miracle. So can we, Jesus can go from just being some weird carpenter on a boat to being the savior of the world. You can name and know Jesus. Third, Jesus invites us to an evaluation of values. Notice what happens in the story that they get this haul; They've hit the lottery. And nobody in that story would have blamed them to just say, look, go take the fish and live an easy life. And yet they walk away. They walk away something has come into my life that has reoriented all of the things that I find most important. And so I can move away from the things that once were valued differently, but now are totally different in light of who God is. You see, the application is what was important to you before may not be now. I love... Uh, William Temple was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and I love this quote from him. It says, the spiritually minded person does not differ from the material minded person, materially minded person, chiefly in thinking about different things. These two groups of people, they don't think about different things. No, but the difference is that they think about the same things differently. The spiritually minded person does not differ from the materially minded person chiefly in thinking about different things, but thinking about the same things differently. That is reorientation around Jesus. It's not that we're thinking about different things completely. No, we're thinking about the same things with a different orientation, with a different view of reality, with a long view of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and who we know him to be. We as people who follow Jesus have to reorient and reevaluate all the things that we held dear, and we have to say, in light of Jesus, this is valuable, but this is more. There's permission for you to say what was important before is not now, in light of who Jesus is. Finally, uh, Jesus comes to set the captives free, and you're like, this wasn't written anywhere in the text, Nate. Like show me what's happening here. But I think it's important because this actually sets the stage for what Jesus is doing. And this story comes right after Jesus talks about what he has come to do. In Luke 4, 18 and 19, this is what Jesus says. And this is the gospel, that the spirit of the Lord, Jesus is speaking, he's saying, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I think this is true both spiritually and physically. That what Jesus is saying, is coming. he's coming to do, is he's saying the abstract and the concrete come together to give us enough certainty to know and enough uncertainty to say we're still figuring it out. It gives us enough of a picture of reality to say matter, people, things are created good. And yet, and yet there's this Weird spiritual aspect where I don't live into the identity of who God has made me to be, that the things that I do don't align with some of the values that I have, that there's this sense of brokenness and need for redemption that we're constantly after. And so, whenever we sing songs like we just sang about the world becoming new and all things being made right, we don't just talk about the physical, we talk about the spiritual, but it's not an either or, it's a both and that both of those things are becoming true. And so, Physical prisoners are set free, but spiritual prisoners are set free. Our alignment is, the way we have aligned our lives is realigned around the person and work of Jesus, where we can say, I'll leave even the biggest hall of what I thought was most important to direct my life in a whole new direction, give it whole new meaning because Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus comes to set the captives free. And so what does that mean? What's the application is that you can head in a totally new direction. You are free to follow Jesus and figure it out. You're free to follow Jesus and figure it out. Stephanie Buchanan Crowder is a, 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 a black female professor at Chicago Theological Seminary. And this is what she said. She said, having just made the great catch for which they had long been working, the fishermen abandon it to follow the one who enabled it. Wow. What a reevaluation of priorities. My life's work culminates in wanting to see exactly what happened happen. And yet there's one who enabled that to happen. And I can see beyond just what is to who enabled it. And I can come before Jesus and say, Jesus, Lord, look at what you've done. My life is entirely shaken because of this reality. But you are reorienting it. And in that reorientation, I'm invited to something new, to something good, to something right, to something just, to do good in the world, to live justly in the world. Jesus has come to set the captives free, and because of that, you can head in a new direction. So here's the question, who or what are you a disciple of? And if I ask that individually, that's true, but what I want to ask is corporately, and as a church, we always have to ask that question as our collective, who or what are we a disciple of? Because if our church is not a disciple of Jesus, we've lost our way. invitation of Luke 5 for us as a community is an invitation to be a community centered on the things of Jesus. Joel Green says this, leaving all that has been of value, Jesus's disciples now find their fundamental sense of belonging and being in relationship to Jesus, the community being built around him and the redemptive purposes that he serves. Jesus is creating a whole new community, a community of belonging and being. What does that mean? It means that I pray that you find belonging and that you can call this place home, that this is just merely an extension of your living room, that you can come and sit and be vulnerable and known, that you can wear the sweatpants that you can uh, scrub it up if you want. Uh, You don't have to come putting on a face, but there's belonging here for you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you think God thinks of you, there is a seat at the couch for you. But also being. Because here's the reality that some of us are still trying to figure out who we are. And it's confusing and it's hard The community of faith is not just a place where we can fake it. The community of faith is a place where you can say, this is who God's made me to be. If it would just be belonging, it would be great, but it would be absent of God giving you personal meaning and worth. And so this church is a place Where we find both belonging and being, rootedness in who we are and rootedness in who we belong to as God's people. That is the beauty of what Jesus is inviting you into, that it is something. Something so much bigger and sometimes we give ourselves to in futility. And yet, there's justification for any person to walk away because the church in this culture has become a place where belonging and being are conditional. Where everything is conditioned upon do you have the most concrete theology? And I think we miss the invitation of Jesus to be a community of belonging and being when we try to make our world too concrete? And what if we just focused on being a community that loved God and loved our neighbor? What if we focused on being a community of people that says our arms are open wide to you? You don't have to believe rightly. You don't have to think like, think rightly. You just see Jesus. And you might say, might the community be the thing that helps reorient people to know the Jesus that Peter dropped his nets in broad daylight to follow? The Jesus who might be a good teacher, but now he is Lord. He is the one who I center my whole life, and being around. And he's the one who our church centers our life and existence around. Because the beauty of Jesus is so undeniable.